Okay, kids, it's time to start dancing. Hello, I'm Don Mockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 135 for the week of August 3rd, 2022. The related website for this podcast is donmockholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com, two H's. Okay, kids, more music in about 15 or 20 minutes. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, August 3rd, the moon is 35% full in our evening sky, meaning it's a few days short of first quarter. By next Tuesday, August 9th, the moon will be bright, 90% full, and up for almost the whole night, setting just before dawn. We still have some meteor showers in our morning sky. Get out and see them before the moon gets involved. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? Which, for our purposes, begins Wednesday, August 3rd through Tuesday, August 9th. It depends upon where you are located. This week we have three zones. All you need to know is your latitude. North of 40 degrees north, you'll not see it at all. Between 15 degrees south and 40 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky for at least part of the week. And between 60 and 15 degrees south, it will be in your morning sky for at least part of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location then click on ISS. What follows is the story of my fourth comet discovery, which took place on August 6, 1988. This year, I'm going over the story of each of my comet discoveries near the time of the year when each occurred. You can also find the story with pictures at my website, donmockholtz.com. So here's a story with commentary. I stood along the side of our truck debating with myself whether it was worth it to set up the big binoculars and search for comets. A thick layer of fog was below me, and a few wisps had worked their way up to my 3,300-foot elevation. They blew away in a gentle breeze, but came back before disappearing again. The moon, which was 33% full and had risen at 12.43 a.m., illuminated the fog from above, while the very same fog hid, hid the city lights below. During those ten minutes, my mind swayed more and more towards staying 
and with not much ado, I began to set up my comet hunting instrument. When I did comet hunting from Loma Prieta in the Santa Cruz Mountains in northern and central California, this would be known as a top 10 night, a night in which the fog was below me and covering up the lights of Morgan Hill and Gilroy. And if it extended to the north, it would cover the lights of San Jose. And if it went all the way around to the southwest, it would cover up the lights of Santa Cruz. On those nights, it, the sky was exceptionally dark. At 1.40 a.m. on the morning of Saturday, August 6, 1988, I began comet hunting session number 1696. My wife, Laura, and son, Matthew, climbed into the back of the truck under the camper shell. They would be sleeping while I was sweeping. My plan was to cover the northern region of the morning sky from a declination of 20 degrees north to 60 degrees north of the equator. Here's probably the most important thing about this comet discovery. Most comet hunters do not sweep the morning sky until the moon is a thin crescent in the pre-dawn sky. But I determined in the late 1970s that with a clear sky and from this elevation, I can see rather well with the moon as bright as 40% full as long as I avoid the vicinity of the moon. Those of us who search for comets from light-polluted locations have learned to put up with a certain amount of light. Usually it's artificial light pollution. Sometimes it's moonlight, and quite often it's twilight. <laughs> and this morning the fog was taking care of the man-made city light below. So with the moon up, I would lose perhaps a magnitude of light grasp due to increased or decreased contrast. And that's something that I can live with. The binoculars I used are homemade, designed and developed by myself in the spring of 1983. It was built for under $400 from surplus lenses and eyepieces mounted in a plywood box measuring three feet long, two feet wide, and one foot high. This box of optics weighs over a hundred pounds, so I attach it to the top of a pipe alt azimuth tripod mount. The front objectives are aerial lenses, each consisting of five elements, the front measuring 6.1 inches in diameter. The lens system is rated as a 36-inch focal length with a focal ratio of 8, and this implies a 4.5-inch aperture. However, by measuring exit pupils of known eyepieces, I've determined the effective aperture to be about 127 degrees or 5.0 inches. The eyepieces give 27 magnification in a field of view of 2.4 degrees. This same instrument was used to discover my previous find in May of 1986. The main difference is now that it's on a short tripod. So I sit on a bench as I sweep. My first sweep began at 1.40 a.m. near 
the galaxy M74 and went northward to the double cluster in Perseus. I was sweeping out azimuth parallel to the horizon. I picked up the, those two objects. Then over the next hour, I would also see diffuse nebula, NGC 1491 and 1624, and a couple open clusters. At 2.32, I picked up an object that was small but appeared fuzzy. It was located at roughly 2 hours 34 minutes plus 31.6 degrees. After consulting my two star charts, Atlas of the Heavens and Unimetria, and finding no objects plotted, I went to my photographic star atlas. I circled its location on the map where nothing seemed to be and drew a large-scale drawing showing its location in reference to the stars. This was completed by 2.47, within 15 minutes, and then I went back to comet hunting. By 3.15, I had swept up the moon's location, and I took a short rest. This is where I fill in the logbook, stretch, and then get back to sweeping. I also took this time to return to the mystery object. It had not moved. A comet would have. I have since concluded that this was a couple or more faint stars which appear fuzzy when seen under low power. This event, finding a false fuzzy object that requires further investigation, occurs every fourth or fifth time that I'm hunting with the binoculars. See, you thought I had found the comet there. Actually, it wasn't, just a little group of stars. At 3.20, I resumed sweeping. I picked up four star clusters in Auriga while my southern limit was slipping southward towards the celestial equator. I was listening to a radio station known as KLOK Radio out of San Jose, and disc jockey Jay Stone was playing the song Can't Get Close Enough by Exile. Sadly, the radio station was in its last week. On Monday, it would change to a Spanish-speaking format. At 4.17 a.m., I picked up a rather large, diffuse, fuzzy object. My first thought was, well... Perhaps this is Galaxy NGC 1637. I sometimes pick this up while sweeping, but as I continued looking at it, I realized that this was brighter and larger than the galaxy. This object, for some reason, looked like a comet. Putting on my glasses and sighting along the binoculars, the binoculars do not have a finder scope, I realized I was a few degrees north of 1637. Since there was nothing this bright in the vicinity of the sky, I came to the conclusion, within 30 seconds of finding it, that this was a new comet. My next step was to determine exactly where it was and discern any motion that might be present. This information is needed by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory if the comet is going to be confirmed. I tried to identify the star field on my star atlases, but after a few minutes, I wasn't getting anywhere matching the stars to what I was seeing in the binoculars. 
So I went to the next best thing, which was to draw a large-scale map of the object with the surrounding stars. So then I could detect motion. This was done by 4.25. So eight minutes after having found the object, I now had it plotted on my own little map to see if it would move. Partly because I did not want to wander far from the comet because you don't want to lose it. And because I don't have a finder on my binoculars, it took a long time to plot the position of the comet onto my star maps. But within 15 minutes, it was finally plotted, so now all I had to do was for watch for motion. Astronomical twilight was arriving at 4.38, with my last chance to view the comet at about 5.15. At 5.18, I replotted the comet on my large-scale atlas. It had indeed moved in what appeared to be the northeast direction. I estimated from less than an hour's movement, that in 24 hours it would move under one degree. This would be necessary to know if we want to find it the next day. By throwing some stars out of focus, and later looking up their brightness, I determined the comet to be magnitude 8.6, fairly bright for a new comet. I knew that there were no old comets in the area. But there still remained the possibility that this comet had already been discovered in the previous one or two days. So now I had to get home, this was before cell phones, and call the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory to ask if it had been reported by someone else. I awoke Laura and my son Matthew and had both of them look at it through the binoculars. Laura saw it, but Matthew, two years old, probably did not. The 22-mile drive from Loma Prieta to our home in San Jose takes about 40 minutes, even on Comet Discovery Day. Phone calls to the SAO office on Saturday determined that no one was there, so I called Director Dr. Brian Marsden's home and got no answer. Finally, I tried... Assistant Director Daniel Green's home, and I left a message. I went to back to bed for one and a half hours, and then I went to a picnic from 10.30 to 1.30. It was held at the Vasona Park in Los Gatos. It was sponsored by the Fair Adoption Group. I then took Laura and Matt to a friend's birthday party. Busy day. Upon arriving home, I phoned a few friends and my parents. I then called other amateur and a few professional comet observers so they could help confirm the existence of the comet by observing it the next morning. That night, Laura and I went to a Hank Williams Jr. concert at Shoreline. That's in Santa Clara, California. Laura likes country music, and I had promised to take her a few weeks previous. It was a good performance. We were home at midnight, but up again two hours later for a drive back to Loma Prieta. My friend, Rich Page, who had helped me to confirm two of my previous three comets, was already there. Mark Maddox, another friend, along with avid 
amateur astronomer. This is the only name I have for him. Steve from Santa Cruz. <laughs> he had set up nearby. Also present was Grant Fergermetal. He had just completed a book called New Horizons in Amateur Astronomy, and he happened to be in the area. I phoned him the night before, and I invited him up. We had quite a few people there to see it. In fact, of all my comet confirmations, this is the most number of people we've ever had. Usually, it's just me, especially in Kofax, uh, up, up, out there by myself the following day to follow up. Now, the most dreaded thing that could happen at this point would be if we could not find the comet. If no one ever saw it again, then I'd look like a real fool. So these moments are tense as we begin searching the eastern sky, beginning at the location the comet was discovered at the morning before, and moving in the expected direction of travel, as occurred on at least one prior confirmation morning. Rich Page was the first to spot it. The comet had moved 1.4 degrees due east. We all looked at it through each other's telescope. An announcement circular was released the following day, August 8th, giving the name as Comet Mockholtz 1988J. An orbit was released the next day. It showed the comet headed toward the sun approaching to within 14 million miles on September 17th. Also announced was the fact that five Japanese comet hunters had picked it up on August 8.7, which was 2.1 days after I had found it. They had not swept the sky until the moon was less bright in the morning sky, and this cost them a name on the comet. One of them, Yanaka, apparently learned from this and found two comets in moonlight some five months later. Comet Mockholtz brightened steadily for the first few weeks, passing just north of the belt of Orion in mid-August, and it was displaying a short tail. But as it neared perihelion, it faded. A few positive sightings and many negative sightings imply it did not survive its passage near the sun, a fate also shared by my second comet, 1985E. Closer to home, the usual number of newspaper and radio interviews took place with no TV interviews this time. And this is odd. I developed a short-term case of mild stuttering from the nervousness. So the comet did brighten up as it approached the sun. It went around behind the sun and then popped into the evening sky where it should have been visible in a pair of binoculars. As I said, it disintegrated, but we didn't know that for sure when we went back out to look at it in the evening sky in October 1988. You probably remember that night. Not because you were looking at the comet, be because of something else that happened. My friend Rich Page and I were up at Loma Prieta that evening, trying to pick up my comet now in the evening sky. And we looked and looked and looked, and as the evening 
sky got darker, we were unable to see it. We were also listening to the baseball game, World Series, Game 1, 1988, Oakland A's, L.A. Dodgers, ninth inning. And we have the radio playing while we're looking for the comet, and we're getting a little discouraged because the comet's not showing up. And we're listening to the game, and Kurt Gibson comes up, keeps following the ball away on each pitch, finally hits the home run that wins the game for the Dodgers, game one of the World Series. And I was, uh, I'm a Giants fan back then, San Francisco Giants and Oakland A's. I was rooting for the A's, and that was the second disappointment for me that night, the first being not being able to see the comet. Now, because this comet was missed by myself and others in July, I suspect it brightened rapidly shortly before discovery. This comet discovery, my fourth, took place 4,091 hours since I began comet hunting in January 1975, 13 years before, and 475.5 hours since my previous find, 27 months earlier. It was 67 degrees from the sun as seen from the earth and 18 degrees high in my eastern sky as seen from Loma Prieta in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California. And the temperature was 49 degrees on August 6, 1988, the morning that I decided it was worth it to set up the big binoculars and search for comets. End of story. Let's get that music going. recap the podcast what's up this coming week this is the best week for the Perseid meteor shower as the moon is going to get into the way early next week you have been listening to looking up with don podcast episode number 135 for august 3rd 2022 i'm don mockles once again the related website for this podcast is donmockholtz.com That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com Two H's You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com Once again, that's dontheastronomer at gmail.com God willing and pod willing I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. I'll recount the story of the discovery of my eighth comet on August 13th, 1994. We will also discuss what's up in the sky. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.